Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is this is True Crime Psychology and Personality where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question asks if I can analyze the Nikki Adimando murder case. So here I'll be looking at the background of the individuals involved in this case, I'll move to the crime, and then I'll offer my analysis. This incident took place in Poughkeepsie, New York. It primarily featured two individuals, Christopher Grover and Nikki Arimando. The two would meet in 2008 when Chris was 21 and Nikki was 19. In 2012, the two would move in together and Nikki became pregnant. Chris worked as a coach at a gymnastics business and Nikki stayed at home. With their child, they would have another child not long after this. Several reports indicated they were both great parents, affectionate, attentive. They took that role seriously. Because only Chris worked, they did struggle financially. Some of Nikki's friends noticed that Nikki would sometimes have odd bruises or other injuries. This kept occurring over a long period of time. Nikki never reported any type of domestic violence to the police, but she did tell therapists, medical professionals, and friends that Chris had injured her and was aggressive in a sexual manner. On the various occasions when she sought medical attention, several different types of injuries were noted. For example, it appeared as though she was burned with an object like a spoon. There were injuries on her wrists that looked like rope burns, and she had a number of bruises. On September 21, 2017, An anonymous tip came forward to Child Protective Services, CPS. The tip indicated that Nikki had visible bruises on her face and chest on a weekly basis. September 27, 2017, CPS sends two caseworkers to the apartment of Chris and Nikki, where they talk to the couple and their children. Nikki denied that Chris was violent, and she denied there were any weapons in the house, when in reality, she knew that Chris had a firearm. Chris denied being violent. He said he had no criminal history. The couple's son, Ben, said their parents yelled about adult things, and his father grabbed his mother. Before the caseworkers could talk to anyone else, Nikki texted her sister, saying, mention no injuries. She indicated she was a good mother and that Chris was a good father. Now moving to the homicide. In the early morning hours of September 28, 2017, the next day after the CPS visit, The police approached Nikki's vehicle as it was stopped at a green light. Her two children were in the car. She exited the vehicle and told the officers she had shot Chris. She said it was self-defense. She asked one of the officers what was going to happen. He told her, as of right now, you're not in any trouble. 
I guess he forgot about the murder part. Nikki was taken to the police station, where she talked to the police without a lawyer. She was arrested for murder. She would eventually be represented by two private attorneys after some brief dealings with public defenders. The case went to trial after Nikki turned down a plea agreement. The nature of that offer wasn't clear, but if she had accepted it, it would have resulted in a sentence less than what she ultimately received. Here's what Nikki said happened on the night of September 27 and the early morning hours of September 28. Chris and Nikki watched a movie with their kids. She took the kids to the park and then put them to bed. Chris was behaving differently than usual. He was calm and being nice. Nikki thought maybe the CPS visit caused him to rethink his behavior. Nikki then realized that Chris intended to kill her. She could tell by the look on his face. Chris retrieved his firearm and loaded it, even handing Nikki one cartridge to load into the magazine herself. On Chris's phone, the police would find 15 minutes of internet searches right around the time of the homicide. Essentially, the searches were designed to find out if the police would know if someone had been shot in their sleep and where in the head to shoot someone to cause death. The pronouns in the searches made it seem like the victim would be female, but Nikki did have the passcode to Chris's phone. So she could have conducted the searches and just used pronouns to make it seem like he was the one who conducted the searches. Now, after retrieving the firearm, Chris committed an assault of a sexual nature against Nikki. She alleged that Chris did this frequently throughout their relationship. After this, she tried to slip away, but he produced the semi-automatic pistol. There was a struggle and the gun fell to the ground. She picked it up and pointed it at him. They were standing between the children's room and the front door, so Nikki felt as though she could not safely escape with her children. Chris told her that he was going to kill her before bringing an end to his own life. Nikki lunged and pulled the trigger, shooting Chris once in the head. So let's look at this case from the perspective of the prosecution and the defense. On the prosecution side, they would say that Nikki was not a victim. The medical examiner established that the gun was touching Chris's head when it was fired. Nikki threw Chris's laptop in the bathtub to make it look like Chris was trying to destroy evidence. Nikki had sent texts to Chris a few days earlier, calling him a man-child and stupid. The prosecution argued those internet searches right before the homicide must have been conducted by Nikki. Nikki had sent a text to a friend six weeks earlier. In that text, she said, I haven't figured out how to kill him, so I am still here, followed by a grimace emoji. The defense argued that this emoji clearly shows that she was joking. At the trial, there was this debate about whether the emoji was really a wry, smiling face instead of a grimace. I guess this was in an effort to improve the image of splitting hairs. As it turns out, there is a way to engage in a more meaningless and tedious activity, debating emoji faces. Nikki made accusations against a police officer who she had a relationship with and against a maintenance worker. She had some difficulty remembering the timeline. The prosecution suggested this showed a history of making false claims. The medical records were not entirely clear. For example, on one occasion, she answered no to a number of types of abuse. She came back a few days later and then endorsed those items. The prosecution suggested that Nikki's injuries were self-inflicted or they could have been inflicted by somebody other than Chris. 
Now, as far as the timing of the murder, the prosecution believed that it was really all about CPS. Nikki was afraid that they would realize she was falsely claiming that Chris was violent, so she decided to commit the murder. Now, looking at the defense side, the defense argued that the way Nikki described the shooting was consistent with the evidence, suggesting that perhaps the gun was not actually touching Chris's head. Nikki had no criminal history. She was, in fact, the victim of several assaults of a sexual nature in her lifetime, including one when she was five years old. They argued her behavior saved her life. It was self-defense. They also said some of her injuries could not have been self-inflicted. For example, she had a bite mark on her shoulder. To address the issue of those aggressive texts that she sent to Chris, they said that she was trying to stand up to him and she would pay for those texts later. They said that Chris would try to recreate pornography that he had seen. The jury was not allowed to hear about a website account that was set up with terms that appear to be associated with Chris. Someone had uploaded explicit videos and images of Nikki onto that website. It was excluded because there was no way to prove who actually performed the upload. Nikki Arimando's trial concluded after 14 days of testimony. She was convicted of second-degree murder and criminal possession of a weapon. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. One juror indicated that the jury simply didn't buy her story. They wondered why she didn't just leave. Why kill somebody in their sleep? For the most part, they did believe she was a victim of violence in that relationship, but they also thought she was a master manipulator. Before sentencing, the judge considered the application of a law called the Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act. Essentially, this law allows for a wider variety of sentences when a convicted party can show that domestic violence played a role in their crime. 
the judge found that Nikki had an undetermined and inconsistent abuse history and tremendous access to resources. Therefore, the law would not apply. She was sentenced to 19 years to life and would be eligible for parole in 2036. So now moving to the next questions. Was she guilty of murder in a legal sense, and did she really do it? So the law versus reality. I'm going to divide this case into two questions. Was she really the victim of domestic violence, and did she believe that she was under lethal threat at the time she pulled the trigger, which is the standard in New York for self-defense? She could have been the victim of violence and still be guilty of murder, but these questions are still tied together. One does inform the other. In looking at all the evidence for and against, I find it reasonable to believe that she was the victim of domestic violence. That argument simply requires fewer assumptions. It's a simpler explanation. Chris was violent. Nikki was injured. People saw those injuries. She was afraid of Chris. She did not want to lose that relationship. There was a lot of risk in ending that relationship, including losing her children. Again, a pretty straightforward set of circumstances. It all does seem to make sense. Of course, it is possible that she made everything up. But what would be her motive? So she inflicts injuries on herself, perhaps as part of some pathology, and she tries to explain them away by saying that Chris inflicted them. When it seems like people were onto her scam, she murders Chris. It just doesn't make sense. Yes, there are certain types of pathology where people harm themselves, and this has been brought up as a possibility in this case. But here's the problem with those theories. The disorders associated with that behavior, like factitious disorder, borderline personality disorder, and depression, don't seem to be part of this case. There's no evidence that Nikki had any of these disorders outside of this theory that she hurt herself, which of course was not proven. Another possibility, of course, is that this was some master plan, which apparently is what the jury thought. She hurt herself in a way consistent with psychopathy in order to play the long game. She wanted to kill Chris, but not go to prison. Here we run into the same problem. Behavior like that would likely require psychopathy, and the evidence doesn't support that she was psychopathic. Additionally, before the time of the incident, Chris had some searches on his phone consistent with Nikki's story, like searches including the word sex and the word forced. Again, did Nikki plan this out for years? She used his phone to make these searches, hoping she could reap the benefits later on. As I mentioned, the prosecution argued that there was a text that she sent saying she hadn't figured out how to kill Chris. But messages like that are sent all the time, regardless of whether the emoji was a grimace or a wry, smiling face. The emoji could have been an intensely serious face, and she could have still been joking. Another item, with all those injuries that Nikki had, some of which were on her face and neck, if Chris were innocent, why wasn't he more proactive? Like, why didn't he go to friends and relatives and say, look, you're going to see a lot of bruises on her. I just want to let everybody know I'm not involved with that. I didn't do anything. The analogy here would be if somebody borrowed a car and they brought it back with one of the quarter panels smashed in, even if the person borrowing the car didn't do the damage, wouldn't they say to the owner, hey, I just want to let you know I didn't hit anything. Some circumstances necessitate an explanation. My last point for this question the children had seen things consistent with Nikki's story of an ongoing violent relationship with Chris. So there is further corroboration for her narrative. So on that first question, 
Was she the victim of violence? Again, I would say it makes sense that she was. But what about the next question? In her situation, would a reasonable person believe they were under lethal threat? In my opinion, this hinges on whether the gun was really in contact with Chris's head and whether or not he was asleep. I know there was expert testimony saying the gun was touching his head, but I'm reluctant to put too much stock in any one bit of testimony, especially when it could have been inaccurate. What's more unbelievable to me is the idea that he produced this gun that was a struggle and she happened to be the one who retrieved it when it fell to the floor. That almost seems like something we would see in a movie. I think that Nikki did have the ability to leave and she should have left. Leaving comes with a lot of downsides. It can be dangerous, miserable, uncomfortable, uncertain, painful, but shooting somebody is still not an acceptable alternative. Going back to the overarching question, I do not think that Nikki was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, even though I am suspect about that final confrontation. Now, how about in reality? Like, did I think she really did it? Yes, I think she murdered Chris Grover. What really convinced me was not only the gun touching his skin, but those searches on his phone. If he was really planning on killing her and ending his own life, the issue of whether or not the police would know his victim was sleeping would not be important to him. There's no reason he would have searched for that information. It only benefits her to find the answer to that question. So I think she committed murder, but I don't think she was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. With this opinion, the mystery becomes, why did she do it? That's what really doesn't make sense in this case. If it wasn't self-defense, why commit homicide? Only she knows the answer. In terms of lessons learned, Nikki said that if Chris was violent in the beginning of the relationship, like he was later on, she never would have stayed. I've heard this many times from people involved in domestic violence. The lesson here is this. Boundary crossing is not okay. Perpetrators often start with small boundary violations and then move to more significant violations once two people are intertwined. Once we see financial dependence, emotional dependence, friends and family look at the couple as happy and the victim doesn't want to disappoint them. So the perpetrator is manipulative. They put the person in a position where leaving is difficult. There's no sense in having boundaries if there are no consequences to violating them. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.